welcome to the Metacast Crypto Corner, brought to you by Novik. I'm your host, Nico Vori. First off to everyone, Happy New Year! It's 2023. I hope you all had a peaceful and relaxing holiday break and are ready to grab the new year by the horns because there's another bull run coming. Just kidding. Uh, we don't know what the future holds, um, especially in the weird and wonderful world of Web3. Or do we? It being the start of the new year, today we will, in fact, be taking a look into the crypto crystal ball and make some bold blockchain predictions for 2023 to see where Web3 gaming might be going. And we do it with the perfect guest who has the perfect perch from which to observe the overall market. On the show today, we have Justin Hulag, who has worked on some of the biggest gaming titles in the world, uh, such as League of Legends and Valorant, from his time at Riot Gaming. And he is now the chief studio officer at Immutable, which is one of the leading layer two scaling solutions for Ethereum in particular, which uh, also recently launched a $500 million developer fund to help Web3 gaming go mainstream. So he sees a lot of what's going on in the space. Um, and he's going to share his insights into the Web3 uh, ecosystem, the gaming market as it currently stands. And he's going to help make some bold predictions for what the future might hold for 23 and beyond. Justin Hulag, great to have you here. Welcome to the pod. Great to be here, Nico. Awesome. Well, we are going to dive right in here. So let's start with the first kind of uh, background here, which is a little bit about you, Justin, and a little bit about Immutable. Um, can you share your gaming experience from Riot um, and elsewhere, of course, as well, uh, some of the titles you worked on, and then how that's prepared you for Web3 and your role at Immutable? And then what does Chief Studio Officer actually do? And what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so I was the general manager for Southeast Asia and Taiwan at Riot Games. Um, and I joined when Riot Games was really Riot Game. It was just League of Legends, which at the time was published by Karina. Um, but basically, my job was to figure out how to launch a bunch of the new games that were coming out. So uh, I worked on uh, Valorant and I launched uh, Wild Rift, launched uh, TFT, which is by far the best game that I play in the Riot Games portfolio. I'm terrible at all the other ones. Um, and the last thing that I worked on before I left was Arcane. Um, and th the short story is that because of where I was at Riot, which was, um, you know, based in Singapore and really kind of paying attention to the Southeast Asian market, um, at that time, Axie was becoming a really, really big game, right? And so, so Riot had started to look into Web3. That got me put on a committee to sort of try to understand what was happening within Web3. Um, and as I learned more and more about the space, I, I got more and more interested. Um, and then by sheer luck, I ended up at NFT NYC for a, a work trip um, and ran into Robbie Ferguson, who is the, the president here at Immutable. Um, and for those folks that, that don't know Robbie, Robbie is an incredibly charismatic human being. Um, and I found myself, you know, getting like a wine spritzer with him at this random party. And then three months later, I was moving to Sydney. Um, where I really had never spent any real time uh, and was working at Immutable, working on the game studio. Awesome. And Chief Studio Officer, uh, what, is, what does that role entail? Um, you know, wh what do you see, what do you do day to day and uh, kind of, you know, what's your portfolio look like? Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny title, isn't it? Um, so I, I think that the Chief Studio Officer title is equivalent to the uh, head of studio title, like CEO title, president. It, it depends depending on which studio you're at. And basically, it's just a person who has ultimate PL accountability for the game side of the business, right? 
Um, and, and we have two sides of the business at Immutable. There's the platform, which is the team that builds essentially the, the layer two on which all of our games run. Um, and then there's the, the game studio side, which uh, from a day-to-day perspective, I oversee the games that we own and operate, which are uh, Guild of Guardians and Gods Unchained. We have a division under called Portfolio Games, which basically looks at, um, if you kind of think in terms of splash screens, right? Like if you imagine like a Tencent X Activision, um, that's you know the types of partnerships that we go into. Um, <clears throat> and then I sit on the grants committee, which is part of the fund that basically looks at developers that are interested in building on Immutable and help to figure out what games should you know get those grants. Perfect. Well, that brings us nicely onto the the uh, next question, which is really, what is the state of Web three at the moment? You know, you obviously get to see a lot of different companies. You've got this fund. You've got the grants. Um, you know, a bunch of folks are building on uh, Immutable, uh, and so you have a. You know, this is why we wanted to have you on the show. You know, this is a great place to look at the overall ecosystem and kind of get a sense of where have we come from and where are we going. Um, what is your view of the Web three gaming market right now? Kind of at the macro level, uh, if you're familiar with the diffusion of innovations curve, you know, which is your kind of early adopters. Uh, innovators, you know, and so forth, all the way to, you know, mass market and then the laggards. Um, where do you think we are right now on that diffusion of innovations curve? How do you see Web3 gaming uh, at this moment in time? Well, I, I think, first of all, I think that we're still in the, like, early adopters, maybe early majority part of that curve. Um, a couple of months ago, I would have said, you know, I, I think that we're approaching a point where we might start coming out of crypto winter and start seeing some some more of that uh, broader adoption starting to happen. Um, I think the recent FTX collapse um, probably will delay that for quite a bit. Um, but where, where I think we are is I think that the, in, in terms of both the developer experience as well as the player experience, we're still really, really early. It's not so dissimilar from like, I always like to talk about mobile. And, and, and mobile for me was always really interesting because so so by way of background, I'm a, a dual citizen of the U.S. and the Philippines. I, I was born in the Philippines and then went to school in the U.S. and then went back and forth a lot um, and, and had a lot of sort of like the, the dual vision around games in particular, because I think that, you know, when I was growing up in the U.S., right, like a lot of the games that we played were mostly console games or PC games, right? Um, but then I go back to the Philippines and, you know, it's like, First, there weren't any games, so just stuff that you would get bootlegged essentially from like Hong Kong or from China. Um, and then mobile came, and then all of a sudden, everyone was playing Snake, and then everyone was playing these games. And you'd go back to the US, and people would talk about, oh, but those aren't real games. Real gamers aren't going to play those games. Like the free to play model that's just a big scam. It's just a way for people to steal money. And, and now you look at the size of the market in mobile, and basically, it like essentially doubled, tripled the market, right? Just both in terms of MAU and revenue. Um, and for me, part of why I was excited about making the jump from, from Web 2 to Web 3 gaming was that I believe that that shift is inevitable. And I think that Web 3 is going to be sort of the, 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 the thrust of that. But I also think that where we are now is in a place where so many things are new and so much is being figured out on both the developer side and the player side that I, I think it's, it's, it's still quite early, right? On the player side, I think things like, um, you know, if you imagine the first discombobulation around making, uh, like, I, I like to talk not, not about games, but actually about, like, online shopping, 
So my, my aunt is like 80 years old, you know, and I remember when like Amazon came out or, or, or Lazada, right. That she was like, Oh, I'm never going to buy things online. I need to go to the store and like physically touch it. Um, and now you look at where, where we are and it's like, she's buying something every other day. And I think that that same sort of adjustment to, um, getting on a mobile app, learning how to make an in-app purchase, kind of shifting your life to a digital economy um, is the same sort of like friction that's happening on the Web3 side, right? In terms of making a wallet, understanding that you are ultimately responsible for securing your assets, right? Like your keys, your crypto, that kind of thing, that that mental model shift is quite hard. On the developer side, I still think that many developers think that the key to broad adoption is really about like, copying what happened in Web2 and trying to replicate the same genres and using the same building blocks to try to, to do some of the same things with just like a Web2 layer on it. And I think that that might work in the short term, but I'm really interested when developers start, you know, really using and understanding that the product that they're making and the building blocks that they're working with are fundamentally different, right? Like if you have a digital asset that can be used across multiple games, how does that work in terms of your forward planning around the arc of that asset, right? And thinking about like, okay, I might start out with, you know, a CCG or something, but then my ultimate goal is to get that into an MMO. And how do I start thinking about that roadmap? And then also the things that like we don't know, right? I think the biggest, you know, headache, which I think we'll probably talk about later is economies, right? And even for, for me as someone who's pretty like immersed in the free to play world, it came from a fairly successful like Web2 company, right? I think one of the biggest adjustments for me has been making a shift from like, I do not have total control of the economy. So if I make a mistake in balancing, or if I make a mistake in pricing, or if I sell something, the consequences of that it, it, it are, are so much like higher, right? It's, it's like kind of like being uh, more like managing like an, uh, a world economy, right? Like a country's economy and setting policy and, 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 and trying things to kind of set it up versus um, having complete control over everything that's happening. So you've previewed uh, quite a good chunk of what we're going to get into um, in some of our kind of deeper dives. But there's a couple of things, um, and, and we will get to all of those things. Um, there's a couple of things I just want to touch on from, from here, which are kind of at the macro level still. Um, I just want to kind of get your clarification on this. Um, you know, Web3, we're early, obviously. You know, I see the ecosystem similarly to you, you know, to, to mobile free to play, like, okay, initially people were like, well, why would this take over gaming? Why would this be something, you know, hardcore core gamers want to play? And of course, over time, you know, these kind of trends evolve and play out over a long arc. Um, and so obviously it's very hard to know where we're going to be, you know, a year, five, 10 from now, certainly 10 from now in Web3. But do you see, I think where I'm getting with this is, do you see Web3 as additive to the current ecosystem of, of gaming? Um, you know, which is, you know, mobile free-to-play and console gaming and PC gaming. And, you know, you've got the Epic Store. And like, you know, there, there, there are things that are evolving that are, some are quite mature, some are still relatively early, I think, in their kind of adoption curves. Um, do you see Web3 as a distinct replacement of existing gaming trends or existing places where people play games or existing types of games that people play? Or do you see it more as a, here's an additive, additive chunk, it's going to attract new gamers or new types of players who care more about, you know, the tokenized economies or the digital assets that they actually own or being able to uh, have an interoperable uh, asset that goes from, you know, game to game, which of course currently isn't really possible in the Web2 paradigm. So is Web3 a replacement for Web2 or is it additive to Web2? 
So my belief is that it will be additive. But I think that many of the attitudes towards it, both from the developer side and the player side and, and the product side, tend to be positioning it as a replacement. And I'm starting to see those shifts in terms of some of the games that we evaluate and that we look at where you start to see, um, and it's really about understanding the NFT as a, or, or just the blockchain generally as a new medium on which you could sort of develop your creative vision. I'm starting to see more developers understanding that, ah, this is like a new canvas. This is something that can help me to, to, to build something that I haven't been able to build before. Um, and I think that that becomes really interesting when you consider that, um, you know, I think that where those, where that additive creative push and also where those additive players are going to come from, right, is an interesting topic. I think Africa comes up a lot in our internal discussions as a market that has pretty high crypto adoption that matches a lot of sort of the, the same um, characteristics, I think, of Southeast Asia, right, in that, you know, not a lot of focus from game companies before starting to see like a, a fast adoption of a technology that is sort of not as where there's not as much friction there, I think is in other parts of the world. Um, but, you know, those additive players of that additive growth may not come from geographies. It may come from other places. Right. Um, and that's part of what I'm very interested in exploring and kind of thinking about, you know, is that when we start thinking about the technology and when developers start thinking about this technology, primarily from an additive perspective, I think that that's when you'll start to see the explosive growth that, you know, we and, and you know, frankly, many investors are super excited about, like what fuels the bull run is the speculation about when that additive moment will come. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I, 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 you know, I don't see Web3 as a replacement for existing games. I think people are going to play the games that they like playing, right? Um, and I just see Web3 as offering, and blockchain technologies in general, as offering developers new and interesting ways of designing different kinds of game economies or different kinds of game assets or different kinds of experiences, you know, different arcs, uh, different moments of surprise and delight that tap into slightly different motivations uh, compared to Web2. So I, th I think we share a similar um, perspective on that, uh, you know, yeah. additive, not, not, a, not a replacement. I, I, I think we do. And, and I, I will say that like one of the things that I always keep in the back of my mind is think about chasing like the players that are excited about your product and stop trying to like win over those players that have a lot of FUD or a lot of sort of like doubts about your product because those people will eventually come. But growth will come when you're able to chase the people that are enthusiastic about the thing that you're building. And when I look at where that enthusiasm is coming from, it, it's coming from places where the technology is new and there wasn't necessarily something that's being replaced. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And I, you know, that kind of ties in nicely to this, you know, diffusion of innovations curve that, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, proponent of and, and a kind of a scholar of where, you know, you're not going to convince the laggards, you know, the people who are the late adopters uh, to adopt early. It's just not going to happen, right? And, and, and that's just the way it works with almost every single new technology revolution, which includes gaming and entertainment. You know, it's not just like hardcore technologies. It's actually, you know, styles of gameplay. And, and that was the same thing with free-to-play. You know, you had to convince um, the laggards last and you convince the folks who are like super excited about, you know, mobile free-to-play and this idea of like, hey, I can just play this game for free without having to convert. And oh, I can convert if I want to. And, you know, then the designers come up with the designs that actually make that make sense. You know, I was ex-Zynga as well, early Zynga, you know, building on MySpace and, and, and Facebook. And that was very similar, right? It was a very similar kind of adoption curve. Um, and you, you just kind of see that play out over and over again. So I, I, yeah, I, I very much see exactly what you're saying. Um, 
I'm going to come back to another thing you said, which was at the very top of the uh, of the comment here, which was, you know, you see the FTX situation and, of course, the kind of general crypto um, winter that we're in as potentially slowing down adoption. And I don't disagree with you that that's true. Um, I'm, however, questioning why that should be the case. You know, like FTX has almost nothing to do with gaming, right? Crypto more broadly has almost nothing to do with gaming, right? Games are about entertainment. Games are about having a good time. Uh, and, you know, yes, developers you know, are locking new types of gameplay, you know, through tokenized economies and digital ownership. But why should it be that the FTX collapse and the kind of broader crypto winter should have an impact? Um, is there a way for developers to actually counteract that? Is there a way for us as an industry, you know, or through gaming, to not have crypto winter drag us down, so to speak? Um, I, I agree with you that it's true at the moment, but at the same time, it shouldn't be because games are games and crypto is crypto. Um, and the two don't necessarily need to have an overlap on the Venn diagram. I, I don't think that they need to have an overlap, but I think that for better or for worse, they from a perception perspective, they do. And from a funding perspective, they do. I, I think that it, I don't think it's a secret that FTX was a you know, pretty big supporter of a number of in, in, indirectly, right? And through Salada and thinking about many other things of, of many other games, right? And so I think that from where I sit, you know, we see a lot of games that for whatever reason had um, funding that was tied up through folks that had assets in FTX that, you know, suddenly are distressed because a source of the, the, the runway that they were expecting wasn't coming. And so that has an impact directly on their ability to kind of finish the things that they had started and to kind of continue building. So, so I think that that's one very material impact. I think from the second perspective, though, for, for better or for worse, I think that the public sees the crypto, NFT, gaming, speculation craze kind of as all, if you're not on the inside, they kind of see it all as the same thing. And so what happens tends to sort of paint a brush across the entire industry, right? And so, so you're, you're right that they shouldn't necessarily be connected, but I, at least from what I'm seeing, um, and just even in sort of like anecdotal conversations, right, with, with friends and with people, they they see that and they their first thought is like, oh, no, it's all collapsing. Like, what, what are you going to do? What's going to happen? Right. I, I think that probably there's a couple of tactical things that are, are worth thinking about. And one thing is that I think for builders, probably the most important thing is to have a very clear plan and very tight um, cash management to make sure that they're able to build and weather the storm in you know, an environment that frankly is probably not super friendly towards um, raising around right now. You know? And then I think that the other piece that, is, um, that I think is that it just takes one good piece of content, one really good game, one breakout hit to start to change the, 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 the tide, right? And so I think that if the, the, there's so many strong builders <clears throat> that have entered the space and have been building through the bull run and now through the, the, the bear run. Um, and if they're just able to finish that vision, you know, uh, it just takes one success to kind of start to shift the, the curve. 
Yeah. And I mean, this goes back to mobile free to play. You know, it only takes one, you know, a clash of clans. It only takes one candy crush to suddenly blow up into the mainstream consciousness. And it's just, it's just a good game. It's not a mobile game per se. It's just like, oh, here's a cool game. Where can I play it on mobile? Okay, cool. I'll download it from the app store. Right. So yeah, hundred percent agree with you there. Uh, you know, in a way, you know, it was Axia, you know, which obviously play to earn. We're going to get into that kind of that play to earn meta and where we are now um, compared to, you know, a year plus ago. But, you know, that's part of the uh, part of that story is, you know, Axia was one game that was attracting a lot of attention and a lot of players in this, you know, Web3 ecosystem and actually generated a huge amount of excitement from developers coming into the space. I mean, you mentioned yourself, like, you were looking at Axia like, oh, what's going on here, right? And suddenly, hey, developers are thinking, well, this is interesting. There's a bunch of cool stuff we can do, and there's a bunch of different game designs that we can we can create. And so, you know, again, it's that rising tide lifts all boats notion where, you know, you have one big hit or one big thing that captures people's attention, and then, you know, you have that kind of drive uh, into the space from, you know, developers and from, you know, players as well. Uh, and investors, of course, and that creates that ecosystem and the right uh, ingredients. Okay, great. Well, let's let's move on to you know we've mentioned this a couple of times now, but NFTs, right? NFTs is is more or less where the Web three gaming. Uh, I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but more or less where Web three gaming started, which was this notion of digital ownership, and that's still probably the backbone. Uh, I'm happy to be contradicted on that, but it's more or less the backbone of you know what makes a Web three game. A Web3 game is this notion of digital ownership. You own your assets. Uh, you can take them away. You can sell them. You can burn them off the blockchain. You can do whatever you want with them. Your assets, right? Um, what do you think NFTs are going to... What role do you think NFTs are going to play going forward? You know, again, they formed the backbone up until this point, more or less. Um, how do you see them evolving? How do you see NFTs and digital asset ownership as, uh, as defining Web3 going forward? Or do you think it's just a smaller part of it? Is it still going to be the primary driver of, of what makes Web3 interesting? Curious to hear your thoughts on how Immutable thinks about this, because obviously that's where Immutable more or less started as well, was you know providing a layer two scaling solution so that players could own their, their digital assets. Yeah. I, so I talk about this a lot with our, our game designers, and, and actually one of the things that we're talking about later today is exactly this topic. Um, and I think that the importance of NFTs is, is going to increase. Um, but I think where it's going to increase is in the focus that the game designer places on the NFT. And starting to think about the NFT as something that is a fundamental like building block that changes and grows. And, and like one of the shifts that I've really had to kind of drive into our, our designers and that we, we are still trying you know, even at a Web3 first company like Immutable to make real is to think about how our NFTs, like, like we're designing video games, but we're also designing like NFT ecosystems, you know, and we really have to think about how those assets have kind of continued value going forward. And by value, I want to really clarify, it's not necessarily financial value. I think there's been so much of an emphasis in the past on the idea of like, NFTs as like this thing that will hold value and these crazy valuations on these on these digital assets, um, and and you know like you see some of that too in, in sort of like uh, you know Magic the Gathering always like kind of comes to mind right. I mean I think about the Black Lotus that that card that sold for like five hundred thousand dollars, and 
yes, I do think that some NFTs will have that value, but not all of them should. In fact, the vast majority of them should be much, much lower in value, right? Like the value of them is around transferability and being able to potentially make them interoperable and thinking about how they can potentially evolve and how they can hold things like, you know, sold down tokens or something that we're really interested in, right? And thinking about how that can hold data and be a way for users to like think about how they can make choices about what data gets released and what data is stored and how to and of course, I mean, one thing, yeah. sorry to jump in here, but like in-game value, right? Like as a game. And in-game value, in-game, in-game value, value, right? In-game value, right? If you like playing that game and you want to be part of that game's ecosystem and part of that community, um, having, you know, clear, obvious value for the gameplay purposes is, in my opinion, probably the biggest source probably of Probably the biggest thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, people are there by choice. You know, like they're, yeah. they're spending their time and their their money because they want to be there, not because they're speculating. We'll get to the play to earn meta and where we see some of that going. And I, I agree with you; some of these games will still tap into that motivation of financial gain. But but by and large, I would argue that the majority of games need to be games, and that whatever value these NFTs or any other assets in that game hold is for the gameplay purposes and not necessarily for financial purposes. Correct. And, and and I think that once people start understanding that 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 utility and also frankly collectability, right? Like like yeah. why do you buy a skit? Like why do you want to sort of engage in the fantasy of changing the cosmetics of a digital character? Like a lot of that is because it's fun, you know? Like and how do you make it more fun and fun across not just one game, but maybe multiple games? And how do you think about making that 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 reference point easy for other developers to tap into so that that utility can have more and more value. I think that 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 is something that is really important that we have to think about when we're building up these NFTs. And I think that more and more builders are starting to realize that, starting to incorporate in their forward planning, starting to think about the design so that they're not just thinking about one game, one asset, you know, um, in terms of what they're building up. Okay, so NFTs will increase in importance in your view, but it's going to uh, depend a lot on how the designers are thinking about uh, that kind of arc of the NFT. It's not just a case of like, I own a skin and that's it. Like it's done, you know, one and done, uh, which is collectability, sure. Um, but it's more around kind of evolving NFTs and how that kind of core game loop actually incorporates NFTs in digital. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to clarify why I keep talking about the game designer, right? And why I keep referencing back to the developer. It's because like, I don't think that the people who are going to change and make this real are are like VCs and chief studio officers, right? Like I, I don't I don't think that like necessarily the people who are running the business are the ones who are going to make the shift. I, I think it's going to be when the creative person whose job it is to take a vision and make it real is the one who understands, oh, wow, this is a new paintbrush and this is a new canvas. And this allows me to do something super cool that I haven't been able to do before. Like I always think about the Dark Forest one, right? Which is a game that is like totally built on blockchain. That's just an attempt to kind of build out this, that those experiments to me are where you said we'll get to a place where you'll have that bigger mainstream success. And and frankly, like, you know, I don't know. I, I always think from a mobile perspective about, um, Mobile Legends, which is like a game that is really, really loved in the Philippines and Malaysia and Indonesia and maybe not so loved in the rest of the world. Um, that innovation around really focusing on customers and accessibility and kind of building that out is, is where I think that like we'll start to see some of those big shifts, right? Is when developers are able to kind of understand, oh, okay, this technology allows me to do X, Y, Z for this particular customer, this particular player. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love what you just said, a new paintbrush, new canvas. Um, you know, I, I, I like, and I have a similar analogy, which is, you know, it's, it's a new tool set. You know, we have a new set of tools that we can use that we can bring to bear. And I agree with you, it's the game designers, you know, it's the economy designers, system designers who are going to be thinking through like, ooh, we have these cool new tools that we can use. I wonder what we can build with these tools, right? And I don't know if we, any of us really know exactly where it's going to go, although we're making a, a stab at that in this this podcast episode to try and make some predictions, bold predictions for for the year coming ahead. But yeah, I think new paintbrush, new canvas taps into that same same notion as well. Um, and that brings us actually quite nicely to uh, kind of the next big innovation that we saw that Web three enables, which is the notion of you know open and tokenized economies. Um, you know, historically, game economies have been mostly mostly we have an episode on this you know from a few weeks ago, um, but mostly have been closed um, in many ways. That makes it easier for the game designer because you don't have to worry about inflows and outflows on ramps and off ramps, fiat currencies, you know, crypto, like here's where the intersection of crypto does come in. And of course, not every Web3 game is adopting a tokenized economy, is adopting an open economy. And so, you know, I think we'll see a lot of divergence in terms of what designers decide to do. But, you know, for better or for worse, uh, one of the things that Web3 and, and, you know, decentralization and, um, you know, blockchain technologies offers is the ability to open up your economy and to have these on-ramps and off-ramps into fiat and into other, other crypto. And of course, you've got that interoperability where you can take what you've done in this game and transfer that over to another game, assuming you know both games support that. So wanted to kind of uh, get your view on what do you see happening in this space around you know, open versus closed economies? Um, you know, what innovations are you seeing coming forward you know, for this next year or, or further? Um, around tokenization of economies, around adopting crypto for economies, around you know conversion into fiat. Again, I'm very clear it's not played to earn because I do think that meta has played out. You know, if it's to earn, it's a job. You know, games are not jobs. Games are fun and entertainment. Um, but you know, tokenization of economies does does offer some really exciting again tools for game designers and system designers and economy designers to adopt. Um, where do you see this going? More open, more closed. Um, reversion back to web two, what we know, you know, which is closed economies or a lot more risk taking and, and innovation around um, the openness of these, these economies and these systems. I think that as there's more pressure on revenue, there will be more hybrid economies that will emerge where there'll be like a stable web two base that does your traditional sort of, you know, MAU to revenue connection point so that you could sort of understand what's happening there. And then um, more Web3 economy portions will be put on top of it. I, I think, though, like, the, the interesting thing is that I think that now developers are starting to understand the consequences of working with an open economy. And they're starting to realize that those consequences are often not good. You know, so 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 one of the things that I think is often put forward by especially some of the, the three game economists that I talk to is like you have to plan, right? Like you have to plan and you have to think it through, like, how is your token going to be used? How many tokens to use a dual token, use a single token, three to whatever it is. Right. How are you thinking about the mechanisms that are going on? How are you thinking about the sinks and the taps? And and like. I guess like what I've come to the realization to recently and what I've, I've started to see um, from some of the developers that we talked to at the immutable side is there's this realization that like, even if you are like the best game economist in the world with an open economy, it's very difficult to plan for everything, you know? And so we've actually changed the framework about how we start how we've thought about this and have started talking to some of our developer partners about this, which is 
in web two, you know, you, we call it goldfish versus piratas. And I don't actually know if that's, this, is, this actually makes a ton of sense. So we're going to test this live on air and see whether or not this works. But it was just sort of talking about this, right? Um, I think in Web2, you generally are dealing with a player base where you, as the developer, have complete control over the economy. So if you make a mistake on pricing, if you make a mistake on assets, you know, if, say, you want to gift a player everything, if you want to take all of that stuff away, you have decisions that are reversible. Right. And so, yes, it's true that like, you know, you can think about both the in-game economy as well as sort of like the, the actual like dollars that are, or, or revenue that you're bringing in. <clears throat> but you can make shifts to those things very quickly and, and stop if a problem is happening. I think part of the problem with an open economy is that if there is an exploit, there is going to be someone smarter than you that is going to figure out that exploit. If you decide that, like, let's just take a very simple example. <clears throat> let's say that you want to put out a referral program so that, you know, you basically reward a player when someone has, you know, asks another player to join. You know that, like, if you just base that on just signups of an account, that that will be infinitely botted immediately and that all of that value will be harvested out. So to make sure you say, okay, I'm going to gate this behind D30. There is going to be someone who's going to write a bot that's going to fit whatever conditions that you put out and harvest that value. And then all of a sudden, the intention behind that is going to drop. And that's the sort of like piranha model, right? Is that in Web3, there's so much incentive to try to harvest that value that you actually want to be kind of safe in terms of how you think about developing that economy, you know? Um, so one of the things that, I, that we've started to think about in terms of this is like, okay, how do you create an economy like a, that, that is safe for both your goldfish and your products. So an example for this might be like, say, say that you have a referral program where, you know, you basically do some kind of, of token payout or some kind of, you know, release based on, um, um, you know, someone joining. How do you make it so that that's relatively safe? Well, you could make it so that, you know, 50% of that other player's first purchase, like, comes back, right? Which means that like, there's not a ton of incentive to harvest value because you have to put value in to pull it out. And so that essentially deters your piranhas from kind of chomping and kind of taking that value. I, I think that that's like one small example of how you could think about creating a safe goal and really kind of thinking about how what you're deploying into the ecosystem is relatively safe. Um, and I think more and more developers are going to start thinking about this, that, hey, I can't actually plan for everything. I don't actually know if I'm going to make one game or two games or three games. I, I don't have the runway to be sure. So um, I think that's going to be something that's going to be more and more um, prevalent as we kind of move forward. Do you see developers uh, taking these kinds of risks? Um, you know, because again, this is it's something it's, it's exciting. You know, for you know transparency's sake, you know the, the game that I'm working on. Um, you know, we're experimenting with an open economy model. We recognize the risks and the pitfalls, exactly as you say. Like, if there's a little bit more skin in the game, it's both more exciting for the, the players who are there to play the game. But there's also obviously a lot more room for exploits. You know, the more skin there is in the game, you know, the more exploits you're going to have. And you know, as game designers and developers, you know, we know this intuitively, even from a free to play game, people are going to bot the crap out of your uh, your ecosystem if they can, right? Um, and it's even more prevalent with, with with Web3. So do you think developers are going to be taking these chances or are they just going to be like, you know what, there's too much risk here. Let's stick with the NFTs. Let's stick with the digital ownership piece. That's, you know, le less exploitable. Uh, economy is hard at the best of times. It, you know, Web3 and open economies makes it even harder 
um, not worth it. So what's your bold prediction here? You know, we're going to see more experimentation or are we just going to see more of a reversion back to, to the Web2 world? Because I, I think agree we're with going... what you've said, by the way, in terms of like the risks and the pitfalls and the goldfish versus piranhas. I, I like the analogy. Um, you know, I, I totally see the piranhas exactly the way you see them as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a case of this is a tool in the toolkit. You know, is it worth using this tool? Sometimes the tools are just not worth, you know, the, the juice is not worth the squeeze, so to speak, um, uh, in, in certain circumstances. I wonder what your view is and what are you seeing from your developer community thinking about this going forward, not so much backwards. So my bold prediction is that there's actually going to be less experimentation, but there's going to be more gravitation towards experiments that work, mm. you know? So, so I think that especially in this bear market where people are like, wow, I need to be very, very careful with what's happening on, on, on both how I operate and how I deploy capital and how I deploy my tokens and how I use my resources, you know, more and more people are going to say, hey, that thing that X game did really worked. And there's going to be a strong aversion towards anything that looks very dangerous, right? Because I think that we see some of the consequences on that with, with other games like Axie, for example, right? In terms of where that economy has gone. And I think that there's now this very careful approach to kind of thinking about how things are going to go moving forward. But I don't know. What do, what do you think? Do you think more of us? I'm very curious. I, you know, this is, one of those, this is one of those ones where I, I actually personally go back and forth on this one because, you know, it is a tool in the toolkit. We are, you know, I am personally experimenting with it. At the same time, I completely recognize the, the risks and, um, it, it's one of those where is it is it worth it? Like let's experiment with one, you know, factor like NFTs, digital ownership. Like let's make that the experiment, and let's not make two or three or four experiments, you know, roll into one because you know the unpredictability across the board. So I, I'm not going to make a bold prediction. Um, we'll see some experimentation. We'll see some experimentation. I would say I would say that it, the, the Web two analogy that I would think about is 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 blogs. You know, mm. and how, you know, your first set of blogs were super, super experimental and very out there and people put all kinds of content and then suddenly it started professionalizing and consolidating. And then there was like, well, if you're an amateur blogger who wants to make something, I'm going to rely on Squarespace to kind of pull these modules in to kind of help create a templatized experience. I think that that's what many developers kind of will want, especially when they're starting to get involved in Web3, because they're like, okay, I'm interested in Web3. I think it's super, I want to integrate this idea of this Web3 economy in it. I also don't want to do something. I also have seen the consequences of not thinking through everything, and I'm not an expert. So what are some of the things that I can do? I'm going to try to copy and, and do stuff that seems to have worked for other folks um, and things that are relatively safe, you know, first, until I'm sure that I can have the ability to experiment more. So what I think you're going to see in this is this contraction towards honing in on a couple of, of like, you know, what we call the green light modules, right? Or green light approaches that, that will work. And then as people get more and more confident and start really understanding, then they'll be able to experiment more after they have those first sort of like safe passes in the water, you know? Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, all, all game development is about looking at what has come before and saying, who that worked. And then can we make it work even better? Right. Um, you know, Clash of Clans came from, you know, backyard monsters and, you know, Clash of Clans has evolved, you know, with, with lots of different flavors of that, you know, so has match three and, 
uh, you know, uh, puzzle, remember puzzles and dragons from back in the day? Like, you know, so, so like there's just like layer upon layer upon layer of game design that, that builds on top, you know, of course now the merge category isn't just about merging, you know, it's about merging with a story and like, you know, buildables and things like that. So, so all of this stuff, I think, I, I think that is for sure what we're going to see is, you know, if something works, you're going to see developers take that and modify it and make it their own and kind of layer other things on top of it. Um, I think, my big question is like for 2023, are we going to see a bunch of experimentation um, with open game economies? I don't know is, is my, my answer there. Uh, I think there's a, a bunch of risk aversion going on right now because of, you know, Axia and, and Stepin and, you know, like that kind of pyramid shaped, slightly pyramid shaped um, game economy um, that has, I think, you know, game developers and investors a bit nervous. So if you as a, as a game developer is saying to investors like, Hey, um, we're going to do this huge experiment with an open economy. Like, are you more or less likely to raise funding in this environment? Well, probably less likely, right? Probably um, so less I, likely. I think that's where yeah. that's why I'm like back and forth. Like, I'm a little schizophrenic on this question uh, as to where <laughs> I, I would like to see more innovation. I would like to see more experimentation, even if it results in failures. Because of course, most experiments are, you know, they're going to fail. But I would like to see more experimentation happen so that we can see some of those breakthroughs coming um, out into the open and then other developers building on top of those concepts that actually work um, and learning from the failures. So anyway, let's see. Um, I like your bold prediction. Um, I'm not prepared to make one myself. Um, uh, certainly in 2021 and, and through certainly the start of 2022, and that's, you know, DAOs and governance tokens um, as they relate to, to gaming. Of course, Axia was the pioneer in this, you know, with their um, AXS token. Um, you know, they, I don't know what their plans are at the moment, but certainly uh, they had planned to transfer a whole bunch of you know, governance and ownership of the the roadmap for the, for the game and uh, a lot of decision making to the community, to the DAO. Um, I feel like they've maybe backpedaled on that a little bit um, or maybe at least delayed some of that um, into the future. And I haven't seen a ton of other other games really embrace this model of like, con, you know, conferring a bunch of ownership and power and decision-making authority to their, you know, player community. On the one hand, it makes a ton of sense. You know, if you have your most passionate players, you know, making decisions on behalf of the game, that sounds great on paper, but in practice... Um, well, <laughs> you know, sometimes you need a central authority to actually make those decisions and, and make, you know, the right call, so to speak, even if it's the wrong call, but like at least it's a consistent call um, in terms of what decisions you make. So what do you see happening in this space? Do you see DAOs having a role um, with governance tokens or some other form of governance mechanism um, being transferred to players in the community? Or do you see that's an area where, you know what, Axia tried that. They haven't really executed on it. We don't really see a great example of it out there in the wild yet. Um, let's pull back on that. Prediction on this one. My prediction is that you'll see maybe more DAOs, but my prediction is that those DAOs will actually not, will be DAOs in name only, you know, and won't actually, because, because and, and let me let me explain why why I think this is the case, because I think that the Axie example is interesting to dig into. I know that Illuvium was looking at a DAO model. I know there's a couple mm. of games that have thought about this idea. I think it's very hard to democratically govern and manage a video game. And I think about this from my like Web2 experience, right? Like, essentially what you're saying is that either your community democratically makes decisions on all the things that are happening in the game, right? Or you give majority stakeholders who have more of tokens or whatever, right, more rights to vote, right? And so then there's there's the problem of like, how do you make sure that the body politic actually participates 
in those votes or, or makes those decisions? Like, what are the mechanisms under which you ensure that there's, you know, a quorum, right, to, to kind of make those calls, right? The second thing is, like, you know, sometimes, like, making games is very much sort of like a creative endeavor. And yes, it's a group creative endeavor, but oftentimes it requires sort of like the driving vision of a creative or a single group of or small group of creatives. And some of the things that like those creatives see are not the things that players see. Right. And so a player might decide like, Hey, I actually think that, you know, we should just, um, sell all the nfts for 50 cents or whatever it is right like i'm making a dumb example to sort of make an illustrative point right without looking at the revenue models without understanding the impact of the game operations without sort of like making all of the things that kind of come into play around the business side let alone their creative side right where it's like hey i really want this thing to be overpowered in the meta and so like where i think what i mean by in name only by DAOs is that i think that the idea of the DAO and the idea of decentralization and the idea of decentralized decision making is really really like core to one of the things that web3 holds web3 purists hold hold very dear but when you're managing a game it's actually easier to kind of give like simple votes to a community like like let me give you an example what color should this skin be red or blue that's a relatively safe decision that you can give to the body politic that won't have as much of an impact as it is like you know think about all the decisions that you would have to make around how often should we you know do our patch cadence like should we um use ai art for this game or should we hire this external firm to hand build all of these assets right um all of those like deep decisions, like not everyone in the DAO is going to be super equipped to work on. What what I what I think seems to be working on the DAO side is the the contribute like the contributor aspect of it, right? Um, even that has some problems. I think that it's harder to you know, especially with people who never reveal their identity, who you can never really kind of fully like interact with or, or get to know. That becomes harder from a collaboration perspective on something like a game, um, but. But yeah, I, I, I think you might see more DAOs in name only. I'm not necessarily sure how the model will actually work in terms of the practical management of a game. Yeah, I mean, anybody here who's listening, uh, who's ever been part of a studio, game studio, and has been part of the decision-making process internally, never mind externally, but internally, sitting in a room with, you know, the PMs and the game designers and the, you know, the, the data analyst and the studio GM and uh, <laughs> anybody who's been part of any one of those meetings knows that game design almost always benefits from having a single vision holder um, and then, you know, smaller decisions being devolved to, you know, for example, the revenue PM. The revenue PM gets to make optimizations and tweaks. Um, you know, I was part of uh, Zynga Poker. I was a GM of Zynga Poker back in the day. And, you know, the revenue PMs were very, very good at squeezing 1% to 2% revenue gains from, from existing features and running A-B tests. But the revenue PM was probably not going to be like, hey, here's the next bold beat. Like, we want to do Omaha versus Texas Hold'em. And like, that's the call we're going to make. Like, that's not a good call to devolve to the community. Um, and that's just poker. I mean, poker is like a really easy example because poker has a clear set of rules. Um, so yeah, the, the notion to me um, of not just having the internal disputes and disagreements and debates and, you know, uh, all of that messiness that goes with game design and then having the community and the player base also be part of that and whoever has the most governance tokens or like buys their way to the you know has the loudest voice um gets to make the calls like is very very dangerous in my opinion so i 
here's my, I will make a bold prediction on this one. I actually think we're going to see, you're saying more DAOs, but in name only. I actually think we're going to see fewer DAOs. Um, and I think we're going to see fewer governance tokens and fewer uh, experiments trying to devolve uh, decision-making to the, to the community. But my, 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 my like addendum to that though, is that where I think the DAO model becomes really, really interesting is if you set rules around what the DAO can actually like contribute to or have been. So, so like a good example of this might be lore, for example, you know, where like, mm. um, and, and the example that comes to mind is like Blazeball, right? Where, where it's just a web two game. It's not a web three game, but I think that what's so interesting about that game is that they've kind of set rules for the community around how the world will work. And then for each season, everyone gets to sort of like contribute to the story that emerges over time. But because the rules are fairly defined, there's a lot of room for creative involvement and a lot of room for decision-making, but it's constrained within those sets of rules. And so as a result, actually creates the product, right? Like that lore creates the narrative arc of the season, which is not driven by a single creative director who plans out all the beats and things that here's what's going to happen and here's the trailer we're going to build and here's what needs to happen with this character or champion or whatever it is, right? <clears throat> and, and that model becomes very, very interesting to explore from a DAO perspective. But I think that before you let like whatever body politic within the DAO make whatever decisions you want them to make, you have to be super, super clear around the framework of those decisions and what they can and can't do. Yeah, and I, I think that's totally fair. I think maybe we'll see some experimentation around that. Um, yeah, DAOs in name only. I, I like that expression. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, okay, let's move on to something that uh, we've touched on a few times here, including just now with Angry CFO uh, comment here, which is monetization models. Um, you know, monetization uh, is very much also in its infancy in Web3. Um, there are lots of different ways to make money in Web2. Uh, obviously, free-to-play, let's go back to the free-to-play mobile example. Like, free-to-play wasn't really a thing until free-to-play was a thing, and suddenly free-to-play is the biggest thing, right? Um, in in uh, kind of, in terms of generating revenue for the overall gaming industry. Um, you know, in Web3, we haven't really seen a ton uh, yet, in my opinion, other than, hey, I'm going to mint this collection of NFTs, and then I'm going to take a secondary marketplace percentage cut every time, you know, this thing trades. Um, in my opinion, that's not sustainable um, over the long term. Certainly it's not enough to sustain an entire, you know, big studio building a, you know, multi-year project, no matter how many NFT mints you do. Um, what do you see in that space happening? You know, where's the innovation coming from in monetization? Is it a case of, uh, let's bring some Web2 free-to-play, um, you know, philosophies uh, in, into the into the Web3 space? Or are we going to see some Web3 native monetization models emerging? And if so, what are they going to look like, in your opinion? What are you seeing in your uh, So, so, So talking about, about CFOs, because I actually did have this conversation with our CFO the other day, I wish that my answer was, wow, we're going to see all these super innovative Web3 models for, in, for monetization that are Web3 native, and here's the answers for how we're going to solve it. But the truth is that for 2023, and especially in the, like if we think about what is the theme for 2023, I think that the theme for 2023 is risk aversion, you know, mm. like just putting it out there, right? I think that like when I think about when you look at the the results of kind of operating in what is probably going to be a sustained crypto winter and a sustained like bear, bear market, this idea of like, I, I want there to be more of these experiments going out. But I think that the practical reality is that people need and developers need some kind of stability in terms of how they can think about that monetization. So what I think is going to happen is you're going to see more and more like 
Web2 monetization models being implemented into games at a base. And, and frankly, this is what I see at Immutable in terms of the games that we are working with, right? Like quite a few of them are starting to be like, oh, we need to integrate this, you know, energy model into our game so that, we, that it's paid for in fiat, right? So that you can make sure that there's a stable set of, re of revenue that's coming in. Um, and that the Web3 native monetization models and their evolution of that will is, is still TBD, right? Because I tend to agree that I have not yet seen like one that's totally stable. I, I actually think that the trading volume one is one that works well for certain kinds of games, but I'm not sure that it works well for every game. And I think that the game has to explicitly design for it, for that to be sustainable and or predictable. And if you think about the joy of, of CFOs and part of what the, the fun is and that the fun is that the problem tends to be predictability of revenue, right? Sure, you could do one or two blowout sales, right, of like of single sort of like NFTs or collections that are coming out. But how do you make sure that you can predict for the next like one, two, three, four years that that revenue is going to be stable? And I think that if your economy is not like, you know, like an, an, an MMOs tend to be sort of the most traditional model, right? Like think about like an Albion or an Eve or whatever, where there is a ton of tradable, tradable volume that is core to the gameplay. Um, that I think is one model that works for certain kinds of games, but even that is kind of ripped from the web two world. Right. So, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I, I, I tend, I mean, risk aversion being the theme for 2023. I think that's, that's true. I think until we get to the next bowl, um, I think we're going to see, uh, uh, you know, a bit of, bit of a pause and going totally crazy, totally nuts on, on coming up with, um, you know, huge concept because you know you got to conserve your capital and you got to make sure you get through the bear market through the crypto winter in order to actually be able to take those risks you know somewhere in the future so okay um that actually leads nicely to uh to another question which is around funding environment um you know funding of course was was red hot uh, all the way through 2021 and into the start of 2022 um has not just slowed down but i mean it hasn't stopped entirely you still see the occasional funding news but you know rounds are smaller um, you know, capital is being deployed more carefully. Um, obviously, there are huge crypto first funds out there that raised billions and billions of dollars, um, you know, from their LPs, uh, you know, year, 18 months ago. Uh, and they will presumably have to deploy that capital at some point. Um, but many are sitting on the sidelines, are being quite cautious, are deploying slowly. Um, you know, presumably that has to change at some point. Um, what are you seeing? Uh, what do you think is going to happen in 2023 regarding these billions in dry powder sitting out there, and yet we're not seeing a lot of activity in the funding um, environment right now? This is such an interesting question. And like I, I had thought about the answer to this like last night, and I think that my perspective on it has changed like as of this morning, you know? Um, so so what, what, what I was going to say is that one area in crypto that's still attracting investments is, is blockchain games, right? And, and I'm, I'm, I think that that is true, but what I'm seeing, um, and, and part of what, what prompted this was like, like talking to a potential to an investor this morning who was thinking about making an investment in a blockchain game is actually like a lot more due diligence, you know? So it's not that they don't have the capital. It's just that they're very, very careful now about where they put their bets. And they're doing a lot of the due diligence that probably should have been done during the, the, the bull market, frankly, right? Like digging a little bit into uh, like all the boring things that one would kind of expect 
you're digging into, not just the pedigree of the founders and sort of like the concept, but like, can I play the demo? When will this actually be ready for launch? Like, you know, what is your monetization model? Like all of those questions. And so I think they still want to deploy that capital, but they want it into games. But I think they want to see it like they just want more clarity that the 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 builders that are that are going to take the money are going to not just have a product but have a product out like relatively soon so where i think some of that capital is being deployed is actually in distressed games that maybe are just a couple months away for from launching but just need like three four five six months of funding out versus i think i saw before there was a lot more like oh you're going to be start this mmo that's going to be done like five years, which really means 10 years, you know, right. there, there's less appetite for those kinds of projects that are very, very long. And, and tying back to this idea of risk aversion, I think that investors have the dry powder, but they want that powder to translate to safe bets that will actually monetize relatively soon. And so when they are looking at, at you know, my, my prediction is that a lot of that capital will end up going to games that are close to being launched that maybe just need a couple extra months of funding to get it out. Um, or to sort of like safer hands and safer hands tends to translate to, you know, larger studios maybe, or, or, or acquisitions of things that have already built games before, or, or, you know, people or projects that have started in web two and moved over to web three and, and, and have a strong track record, like, like those kinds of things. But the thing that I'm quite bullish about is that, you know, this year, earlier in the year, you saw a lot of capital being deployed towards builders, and those builders have been building, you know. So as those folks actually finish their projects from the funding that they were able to get before, that will create subtraction, which will hopefully um, fuel more deployment of capital towards the end of next year. Yeah, and going back to a point that you made earlier, which is all it takes is one hit, right? Like you get one hit. Um, you know, that's suddenly gonna, you know, oh, wow, okay, there's a hit, you know, and then suddenly the, the herd mentality kicks in again, FOMO kicks in, and it's like, well, I got to be the one funding the next, you know, the next Axia, the next whatever, then, you know, it won't be Axia, it'll be a different, you know, monetization model, it'll be a different, you know, uh, game design. Um, but yeah, you get that one hit, or even a modest hit, uh, and suddenly, you know, the whole situation changes, right? So it tends to skew between these two extremes, right? Like, mm. every game is going to be the next League of Legends. Or no game is going to work unless it's ready to launch like next tomorrow. And like, I just, I, I think that when I think about sort of like what balanced investment into games looks like, I kind of wish that there was like a balance between the two where there was a willingness to kind of take some of the, the exuberance of the bull market and take bets on interesting projects and builders more, but not the kind of like, like exacting due diligence that you start seeing in bear markets and sort of like this like pulling back of funds from things that are so close and and i i do you know this is not a prediction this is just sort of like a individual gripe but i think that it's a healthier environment for developers if there's like a something in between bears and bulls you know so yeah i i, I would agree with you i yeah i mean a rabbit investing, market. <laughs> gaming investing, any every investing, yeah. It just it's so it's so uh, it's so binary, you know. It goes from one extreme to the other, uh, and yeah, it would be nice if there was something somewhere in between. Um, yeah, I don't know if we'll see that in twenty twenty three just yet. Uh, certainly not the first half. Uh, you know, I think the 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 shoe has not yet fully dropped for you know some of these FTX style crypto collapses. Um, I don't think any will be as big as FTX, thankfully. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, we're, we're, we're not through the worst of it, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, we're definitely not going to see that exuberance coming first half of 2023, but hopefully by the second half, we'll start to see a little bit of like green shoots growing, you know, from the, from the ground, Phoenix rising from the ashes and, and all that good stuff. So, okay. Uh, I have two more questions, uh, t- different topic areas to, to talk to. I think this first one is, might be a quick one, but, um, maybe not. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on gaming guilds. You know, that was another big trend we saw early on. Most of it was in the play to earn meta where you had, you know, guilds forming around players that were, you know, grinding for, for crypto and, you know, making an earning, making a living out of it, um, in certain regions of the world. Uh, obviously the gaming guilds themselves, most of them haven't gone anywhere. They're still around. Um, but you know, many of them are having to find a new role for themselves. Some are doing investing, some are doing kind of user acquisition slash marketing, uh, pitches to to game developers um some of them are doing testing like player testing like hey we've got all these players like can test your game so there are a lot of interesting things that are emerging from the gaming guild uh play to earn meta from the from you know from the axia era um but how do you see them evolving you know is, are they sustainable um you know my prediction is they're not all going to survive but i do think many of them will but they'll just look quite different um what do you think? Uh, how different do they look? What are they actually doing uh, going forward? These gaming guilds. Yeah. So, so my my prediction aligns with you. I, I I think that at the beginning, in terms of like, if I had to describe what a guild was, like at the beginning of the year, I would have said that oh, it's you know, essentially a an entity that purchases digital assets and distributes them to scholars and then uses it as an acquisition sort of vehicle to bring folks into new games. And that, that was the way that, like, w- when you think about um, how guilds sold themselves, like a lot of it was like, we are the entry point into getting people into your game, you know? And I've noticed that that pitch has, has shifted in quite a few of the guilds that I've, I've chatted with recently, you know? I think the investment arm is one. I think that um, some of them are now kind of like, marketing agencies is that mm-hmm. like maybe like acquisition yeah. agencies is maybe a way yeah. to think about it um uh, others of them have positioned themselves as like like research firms into specific geographies that are experts in certain areas um and i i struggle with this one because what i'm not what i think is that the way that they're going to evolve is in a way where they become independent entities that essentially become those things i am now an investment arm I am now a marketing acquisition, you know, like agency. I am a research firm. I am a geographically specific entity that can essentially be a publishing arm for you, right? Um, I'm not sure that the that the same sort of like prominence that they held before in terms of their ability to have the exclusive hold on the players is is going to be the same, you know? Because a lot of the appeal for the guilds before was that the players who they had access to could not afford to purchase those assets, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would offer essentially a, a, a share system that in exchange for being able to rent or use those assets for some period of time, you would get some kind of rev share. And now that the play to earn meta has basically like died, right? Or is, is not popular anymore. Now that, you know, Developers are getting savvy to understanding that, oh, we can't actually design everything to be a Black Lotus. Now that you're starting to see more and more digital experiences coming out, I think that guilds are going to have to evolve. And what that means is that they'll still be guilds in name, but their actual function will highly depend on where they've developed those areas of specialization um, from the prominence they enjoyed this year. 
Uh, final question. This is a big one. Um, you know, we all want more players. You know, uh, we all want mass market adoption of Web three games. Uh, you know, when price is going up, everything is easy. You know, people are activating wallets. They're taking a chance on even games that are high friction, hard to get into. You know, you got to convert. You know, go to a centralized exchange, and you got to buy crypto, and you got to do know your customer, and wait two weeks, and then you convert that into whatever you know, ETH or Sol or you know whatever, and then you buy your NFTs, and then the game's not even ready yet. And like you're doing this because the price go up and it's, you know, it's worth it's worth your while to take that chance. Um, obviously, that's slowed down massively. Wallet activations are, you know, um, f- flat, I would say, um, maybe at best down uh, if we're being charitable. Um, sorry, if we're not, you know, if we're being realistic. Um, so the, the big question really is like, you know, where, you know, games rely on gamers, games rely on players and, you know, kind of critical mass um, and adoption, you know, where are the next, you know, 10 million, 100 million, 1 billion gamers coming from for Web3 games? What needs to happen uh, and what needs to change in order for that to be a reality? What's your prediction for 2023 in terms of mass market coming to Web3 gaming? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. So let me kind of take it into chunks and into segments, right? Um, so, so where are they coming from? Um, the answer is like, I am not totally sure, but I have some thoughts on to where they could come from and, and what are the conditions that are needed, right? I, I think that one likely place are from like groups of people that have quickly adopted crypto um, currency because of other reasons, right? Whether it's currency instability in their own sort of native currency or whether it's because they were early adopters. Um, you know, I, I think that when we sort of point to that group, there's the crypto speculator enthusiasts who we saw early on in the bull market. Um, and I think that group has frankly like reached its peak, you know, in terms of the folks that are looking for like lots of black lotuses. I think that that group is already there and that's not a very large group. My personal prediction is that Africa is going to be a very important market for both cryptocurrency and for, for Web3 gaming. Um, I think that you're seeing an increased adoption of cryptocurrency there that's sustained even during the bear market. I think that there are companies like um, Carry First that have set up like straw Garena like publishing arms there that are very focused on sort of the Web3 space. I think that there has been in the past, minimal to little focus, at least from traditional Web2 companies on that market. And so I personally think that you'll see a lot of those players coming from Africa. I'm also quite bullish on Asia, but the shape of where those players will come from in Asia is not totally clear for for me yet. You know, And, and the reason I say not is because if you had asked me like, Earlier last year, I would have said, oh, it's going to be Southeast Asia. Just look at Axie and sort of like the, the, the motivations there are really around playing to earn and sort of the mobile pieces. And so if a great mobile game comes out and it's a great hit, I actually think that if a great mobile game comes out that has like a strong Web 2 sort of entry point that becomes Web 3 and has a good hybrid economy, you'll be able to get, capture some of those like stronger, like previous Web 2 gamers. But I'm not, I, I have some predictions on like where some of those games might come from like i'm personally bullish on guild of guardians which we're making so that's my like tiny plug mm-hmm. but at the same time um you know I, I i i think there's a lot of other contenders that could kind of go there and you know the characteristics of that are not so dissimilar from what you would see from like strong web 2 games that are trying to make a splash within southeast asia um but i'm also starting to like hear other things um you know like 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 i've been really thinking about um like these games that aren't totally games 
this is very inarticulate, you know, and, 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 and it's, I'm, it's inarticulate. I'm even inarticulate about it internally because we're trying to figure out a way to kind of talk about the genre of these games, which like they kind of are tied to some, some activity that you're doing, whether it's like I work out or I like step in, I guess is a good example of, of yeah, that. I Although I, 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 yeah, yeah. Step in. I, I think of like Aglet, I think about, um, you know, hero trainer, like some, some games like that. Um, and I think that some of those games have had some success and, and obviously some failures that have been quite well publicized, but I think that there is something about games that just kind of fit into your life in a very kind of like casual way and how the NFT can record and track based on metadata, things that are fitting in. And like recently for me personally, one of the things that I've been doing a lot is like playing video games at the gym in between sets because that's what I have a lot of time to play games. And so you see some of these like idle games like having more and more of an impact. Um, and I think what you're what you might start seeing is that people who haven't really sort of played games before that might get into it are folks that where it ties into some like lifestyle component that isn't necessarily tied to the traditional personas that you would track when you're going after a gamer. You know, and I, I think that more and more games that I'm seeing are starting to have this kind of hybrid or like not easily definable mechanic around their actual game is the metagame. The metagame is tied to some other activity that is tied to something you're doing in your day to day life. And do you see uh, form factor uh, having a big impact on this? Um, you know, do you see, for I mean, most of the uh, original, most of the early uh, Web3 games have mostly been in the browser just because the, plat, you know, the, the most of the, 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 the app stores haven't yet really embraced, um, you know, crypto, NFTs. Um, and so do you think that mobile will need to be a big factor here? I mean, if you're talking about things fitting into your day-to-day -day life and being part of your daily routine, well, that kind of implies mobile, at least for many activities, certainly fitness activities. Um, we haven't yet seen really any mobile uh, Web3 games. I know that a lot of developers are talking about mobile, but we haven't yet seen that talk really translate into anything tangible. So what do you think about that? Like, is that a, is mobile a prerequisite for mass market adoption or does it, does it need to be? I think, I think mobile is the most likely prerequis mm. prerequisite for mass market adoption, because if you look at all of those groups that I mentioned, but, but I'm not necessarily sure that it's because it's inherently like the web three part that's critical to that. It's it's just that the games that I think would be successful in those groups that I, I mentioned, like all of the groups that I mentioned, whether you're talking about Africa or Asia or this like kind of like lifestyle gamer component, right? Like the most obvious one that it connects to is is mobile, you know, in terms of what is easily accessible now. You can make an argument that if some future technology comes out, like an easier to carry around Oculus, that that might be something where where you could also see a similar adoption. But like personally, I think that that technology is still too clunky to carry around. It's not seamlessly integrated into life. And we haven't seen the same sort of like uh, adoption of VR that you would expect. So, so yes, I, I think that like for 2023 in particular, if we're going to see that mass market hit break out, it is most likely going to be a mobile hit, you know? Yeah. I, and I, I, I tend to agree with you there. I think that's definitely uh, informing my thinking about, you know, what, what are the likely ingredients for some kind of mass market success and adoption? Well, I think mobile and, and fitting into your day-to-day -day life and reducing friction really is kind of the broader theme. Um, yeah. uh, I think, uh, no gamer wants to have their entertainment gated by a two-week know-your-customer experience, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> want to start playing that game uh, right away. So, um, okay. 
Okay. Um, all right. Well, listen, that is uh, that about wraps it up. I think we're out of time here mostly. But Justin, thank you so much uh, for coming on the pod today. Uh, I have personally learned a lot. Uh, I think we agree on a lot of things. And I think we probably have uh, some healthy uh, disagreements on, on some other things. And that's a good thing because nobody can really pretend to know what's going to happen in, uh, uh, in the world of Web3 going forward. Um, hopefully listeners have learned uh, some stuff as well. And, and uh, I'm excited to welcome you back, Justin, anytime. It's been a real pleasure spending time with you. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Nico. Appreciate it. And also a big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we will be back next week, as always, with more interviews, more insights, more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3. So until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send any questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co. And you can always find me on Twitter at nicothefin. DMs always open. <laughs>